did Laura Bridgman become the first deaf-blind child to be formally educated in the United States? And what was she doing hanging out with Charles Dickens? We're answering those questions on today's Footnoting History. Hey everyone, I'm Christine, and welcome to Footnoting History. I first heard the name Laura Bridgman when I was about seven years old. I found a book called Child of the Silent Night that told the story of a deaf and blind girl who came, quote, before Helen Keller. Everyone I knew had heard of Helen and the teacher who had helped her communicate, but no one I asked knew who Laura was, which, as you can imagine, made me feel very cool as a little girl. Since we make it a point at Footnoting History to dust off stories that may not be prevalent in the modern consciousness, I've known since the beginning that I want to talk about Laura, her education, and that time she met with the famous author Charles Dickens. Well, guys, that day has come. In 1829, two seemingly unrelated things occurred in New England. One, the institute now known as the Perkins School for the Blind was formed in Massachusetts. Two, Laura Bridgman was born in Hanover, New Hampshire. Laura was born with all five of her senses intact, but at the age of two, a lengthy struggle with scarlet fever completely stole her sense of sight and her sense of sound, while also leaving her with almost no ability to smell or taste anything. Prior to the scarlet fever, Laura was described by her family as having had bright blue eyes and being very clever, speaking in sentences and being curious about the world around her. In her later life, Laura would say that she did not recall the time when her senses were all functioning. Likely, this was because of how young she was when they were damaged. Still, she maintained this curiosity and learned how to do simple tasks of housework alongside her mother. That's not to say that everything was perfect. At this time in the 1800s, there was no standard way to communicate with a child of Laura's condition. Sure, there were other deaf-blind people, but most of them were left to communicate only their most basic needs and in whatever way naturally developed for them. This meant that not many people could engage with deaf-blind children like Laura because they didn't know how. Sadly, it was also common to think that these people were so damaged that they were beyond reach. For the Bridgmans, communication was a series of gestures such as a push or a pull in the direction somebody wanted her to walk, or maybe patting Laura on the head to show approval. Still, as she grew older, if she threw a tantrum, her father would have to physically stop her from acting out because that was the only way she could be controlled. Now, as fate would have it, at this time, a man named Samuel Gridley Howe, who was the director of Perkins, was bored. I don't know how many of you read or watch Game of Thrones, but I like to think of Howe as the 19th century version of Robert Baratheon, someone who really, really loved to fight a war, but then didn't have all that much patience for the details of ruling after that buzz wore off. You'll see how that plays out. Howe had spent the last few years finding students for Perkins. Okay, that's fine. He had also been giving presentations to the public of the skills his students learned in order to both raise awareness and, yes, get money for the school because fundraising was necessary. 
he also wanted a challenge. So, when he read about Laura's condition in a report done by another doctor, he quite literally hastened to Hanover to convince the Bridgmans to entrust Laura to his care instead of somewhere else. She entered Perkins in 1837. It wasn't long after Laura moved to Perkins that her story reached a wider audience. Howe was basically a public relations maven. His yearly reports about the progress of the school included lengthy explanations about his work with Laura. Instead of waiting for people to read them, he decided he was going to just send it out to everybody. So he sent it to people in France. He sent it to people in England. He sent it to other places in the United States. Soon, even the newspapers were reporting about Laura. You see, she was a very good human interest story. On both sides of the Atlantic, reform movements were very much in full swing at this time. Education, abolition, the building of asylums and changes to the prison system, and of course, the treatment of the handicapped, which pertains to us, were all very much hot-button issues. In Laura, Howe saw a great example of what could be unlocked from a person who was perceived as being devoid of the senses that would make her worth reaching. The public, for their part, they ate up these stories of her progress, and they too began to see Laura as a bright light showing the resilience of the human spirit over adversity. Now, okay, let's pause here for a minute and talk about how exactly Laura's ability to communicate became unlocked, because that's the crux of the entire story. What helped her communicate with the people around her? Keep in mind that Howe was going into uncharted territory, and he had to develop this process as he went along. It could have failed. It did not fail. And in my opinion, that's actually his biggest contribution to the story. This was the process. First, Laura was given objects that were labeled with raised text. After a while, the labels were removed and Laura engaged in what was basically a giant version of the game Memory, where she matched the labels to the objects. Next, the labels were cut up into individual letters and she was made to spell the words herself. This was accomplished as well, but it also took some time. When she spelt the words, she was then given the corresponding object. So that would have been to help her marry the word with the object. Once she could do that, the third step was to take these combined skills and show Laura how to spell the words out with her fingers. Okay, they did this by placing either the label or the object in one of Laura's hands and then spelling the word with her fingers with her other hand. Finally, once those were learned, she was taught how to write. I posted a link to Perkins's Laura Bridgman collection on footnotinghistory.com. If you get a chance to look at the scans of her handwriting, you will see that it has a very blockish quality. That comes from placing the paper over a board that had grooves in it to keep her lines straight. As Laura began to understand what she was being shown and realized that she could use these words to express herself at will, she began to express an interest in learning about everything around her. She filled her teacher's days with endless questions, progressing from just expanding her vocabulary to lessons in math, which she notably hated, geography, and watered-down history. 
I say watered down because they tried to avoid giving her too much of the gory details or talking about war because they wanted to keep her as pure as possible and didn't know how to explain the cruelties of life to this child. As we said, to both Howe and the public, Laura embodied the tenacity of the human spirit. Every Saturday, the Perkins School held an exhibition, allowing the public to come in and hear some of the children sing or see how others excelled at sums or geography or even just conversation. Yes, this was a time when it was considered perfectly normal for people to spend their weekend going to an asylum to watch the patients or visiting a school and observing the students like tourists in the Times Square. Laura was a rallying point for reformers and a curiosity to the average person. Imagine, someone with two senses gone and two more nearly gone was knowing how to point out rivers on a specially made globe. This was mind-blowing to people. They want to take home a piece of her needlework, or to meet her personally, or to get her to sign something for them. Which, by the way, she liked to do, because who wouldn't enjoy that sort of affirmative attention? Anyway, her story then caught the eyes of Charles Dickens. When Dickens came to America in 1842, he made it a point to visit Perkins with his wife and have an audience with the famous child. He was so taken by her that he dedicated a large chunk of his chapter on Boston in the book American Notes to Laura, which, by the way, is also cited on the website and I highly suggest reading because it's fascinating. Dickens marveled at her, remarking about how impressed he was that she could communicate despite being in what he called a marble cell. He said that she had a face that was radiant with intelligence and was thrilled to be able to watch her write and braid her own hair. He said, too, that she wore a green ribbon around her eyes, which in older years she would change the ribbon in for a pair of dark glasses, but it was always very rare to see her with her eyes uncovered. Dickens's writings about Laura was a combination of his own observations and those taken from Howe's annual reports. It became the most widely read account of Laura's life. In fact, in the 1880s, it is said that that is what the Kellers read that prompted them to seek help from Perkins for their daughter Helen. Interestingly enough, we actually know very little about what Laura thought of her condition. She never spoke to it in any sort of philosophical depth. Laura was, in many ways, Howe's specimen as much as she was a student. He produced theory after theory about human nature based on her progress. It was one of Howe's beliefs and goals to see his students incorporated into the wider community instead of remaining isolated with the other students at the school. As such, when Laura was in her 20s, she moved home. By all accounts, she had a good relationship with her family, but the social and intellectual stimulation that she relieved at Perkins was simply not available on the family farm. Soon, she was back living at Perkins, where Howe had secured for her a lifetime endowment to reside there. It's possible that Laura could have remained in the news if Howe had wanted her to for pretty much the rest of her life, but that didn't happen. In tune with his personality, he grew tired of his star pupil. The distancing began actually before Laura had returned home. When she was a teenager, Howe married Julia Ward. Oh, okay, wait, we're going to stop for a second so I can give you two fun asides about this. 
first. The reason how met his wife was because she came to see Laura. So Laura was an unintentional matchmaker. Second, after Julia married Howe, she became Julia Ward Howe. And that name might sound familiar because we're talking about the woman who wrote the Battle Hymn of the Republic. Anyway, back to our regular story. Up until the time when Howe married Julia, Laura had lived with Howe and his sister. But once Howe and his wife wanted to begin a family of their own, Laura was moved back into the dormitory. As you can imagine, this change of affection from being like a father to a more distant sort of teacher, doctor person, was very, very hard on Laura. Furthermore, as Laura grew up, Howe became increasingly disillusioned with her and spent less time with her. He had hoped to prove his theories by keeping her under a strict regimen of intellectual, physical, and spiritual guidance created, yes, entirely by himself. When Laura showed that she dared to have flaws and, most notably, when she developed religious differences from what Howe wanted, he mentioned her less and less in his reports. He even went so far as to comment that the most interesting part of her journey had actually been the beginning, and eventually he stopped writing about her altogether. No doubt this revelation would have very much hurt Laura if she had read it. You know, Howe turned his attention to other crusades, from supporting the abolition movement to helping with prison reforms. This left very little time for Laura. So what did Laura do now that the time of her being a massive tourist attraction was over? Well, she would visit her family in New Hampshire regularly, and the occasional news article mentioned things like her visiting a watch factory when she was in her 50s. In fact, the watch factory article gives us a physical description of adult Laura. She was observed to be pale, very slim, of medium height, with dark hair that had bits of gray to it, and delicate hands. At Perkins, Laura preferred reading her Bible to novels, and developed a reputation for being very austere. Even without the ability to see, she was known to take people to task for not being tidy enough, including scolding a very young Helen Keller for having dirty hands. She had a deep and abiding love of dolls and continued to write letters to the wide variety of people she had met over time. She also was very good at sewing and knitting still, even serving as a teacher to those new students who came after her. It was said that she could identify any type of thread simply with one touch. To the outside world, by the 1880s, she was somewhat seen as a relic. The process developed by Howe in working with her was of more importance than the woman herself. Helen Keller was a faster learner than Laura and became the new person of interest. Laura never asked for the fame she had experienced, and so she was content to be a woman constantly bettering herself and living in a loving environment, which she did until she passed away peacefully in 1889. Yet, Helen never forgot Laura, even though she went on to be considered outshining her. Helen regularly paid tribute to the advances made by Howe's work with her. You know, Laura was not the most independent deaf-blind woman in the world, but she opened doors for future generations of deaf-blind children to be educated the moment she learned how to spell with her fingers. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. 
Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. See you next week!